sorry to butt into your conversations. These things can continue. We'll have the chance to um, think about it more um, uh, after the talk as well. Um, what kind of things? What did people say in your groups? I think we said it, 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 it's not something that people are thinking about or talking about as much a normal topic of conversation. Mm. And even if people are thinking about it, they may be thinking it is not correct or something that's quite a controversial area of attention. Mm. So mm. I think that means we don't tend not to talk about it. That's very helpful. Did you hear that at the back? What other, what other thoughts? Well, one thing we talked about was in terms of lack of confidence. Why not think that Jesus has our best interest? Yes. Um, yeah. sort of might have a different view of what life should be like, and what he does. Yeah. So we can his plan to marry that. Other thoughts? No one else ashamed? Awkwardness. Go on. So, because as Carl says, it's not normal, it's yeah. not something that we've seen modelled on TV or modelled just around us, mm. that, that it puts us in this kind of strange camp of being someone who wants to talk about this very personal, very private thing. Mm. Um, and it might be that you've been friends with someone for two, three, four years. Mm. So to kind of suddenly launch that woman is a is an awkward thing to do. Or if you're meeting someone for the first time, to launch that—that's the only thing that they see of you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. How do you get even get the conversation started? Uh, that raises up another thing, doesn't it? That's the cultural expectation. This is a personal, private thing. And therefore, it's not appropriate to bring it up. Um, is that true? Um, other discussion. Go on. I was just thinking, most people are always going on about atheism, though. So it's not, it's weird because it is personal, and yet people are very interested generally in spirituality. Yeah. But, you know, Christianity isn't about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. In a secular society, it's okay to say that God should be outside the public square. But it's not okay to say that God should be in, and yet everyone's included, right? Mm. <laughs> um. It also seems to be like we kind of live in a society where so much about freedom of speech and things like that that you can't actually say you believe something that doesn't necessarily accept every other opinion. Yeah. That, I don't think that makes actual sense the way I said it. <laughs> yeah, no, it does make sense. It makes perfect sense. Yeah, the sort of inclusivism to the point of ridiculousness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, any other? What's going on? Um, I think the Christians would feel ashamed if they feel scorned. So I think we've gone from a society that um, maybe accepted Christianity to then indifference. And now almost kind of looking down on Christianity. Mm. Yeah, so that assumption that 
we're bigoted or naive or outdated. Um, and sometimes we feel that more than it's imposed on us. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think there are a load of other reasons out there. It is true that much harm has been done in the name of Jesus, tragically. And we can prove very quickly that it's got nothing to do with Jesus. Um, so the imam that Charlotte and I met with last week raised the Crusades. I think it's very quick Show the Crusades have very little to do with Jesus. Um, uh, but um, still, much harm has been done in the name of Jesus, and that's hard to break through. Um, there's that feeling that religious people uh, claim to be better than others. Um, I think I grew up thinking sub- sub- subconsciously that uh, religion is good for people or is for good people from the right kind of family. Um, and so I was a good person from the right kind of family and therefore you know, had to do the churchy thing, but it was important and that was sensible and other people were excluded. Um, but also then that brings in the element of it being boring so let's not bring it up. Um, the idea of Jesus is just make-believe, just a nice story. Um, there's no evidence. Um, I think the big thing is that he's here to kind of, people assume that Jesus is here to cramp our style and therefore to bring it up. Come on, this is not a fun conversation to be having talking about Jesus. Um, and then that thing of the private thing. Religion is a private thing. Just keep it to yourself. You're absolutely entitled to believe what you believe, just don't share it with me. Well, our vision statement smashes through all that, doesn't it? And yet, I can see and feel in the room a sense of, yes, I know it does, and I know theoretically it does, but I'm not kind of, yeah, I'm really excited to get out there and just tell everyone how amazing Jesus is. We, we feel oppressed by the idea that it's hard to talk of Jesus. But actually, if we see how wonderful he is, if we see how good he is, and if we see what he's done, then, if we really understand that, then we will want to shamelessly pursue fullness of life in Christ. So first, we're going to look at because of who he is. Because of who he is. Shamelessly pursuing fullness of life in Christ because of who he is. Um, And we're going to read the passage. So... Uh, Debbie's kind of said she would read um, this long passage. We're not going to focus on every bit of it. Um, John 10, 10 to 33. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for my sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? 
The others said, there are not the these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, for you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Thank you, Debbie. So, why shamelessly pursue fullness of life in Christ? First, because of who he is. And here we have a passage that wonderfully tells us who he is, and he uses a title for himself there at the beginning of verse 10. Uh, sorry, at the beginning of verse 11. I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Which is song, uh, Psalm 23, one of the most famous songs in the Bible. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And so for Jesus to stand up in front of a crowd of Jews who knew their Bible very well, and say, I am the good shepherd, is simply a claim to be God. If we have any doubt about that, we can just see it again in verse 27, uh, verse 27 to 30. My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Only God can give eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Same phrase he then uses for my father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. This is a deliberate echo of the language of Psalm 23 and of bits of uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel written hundreds of years before Jesus. God had promised that he would come as a shepherd to rescue his flock from all the mess that they had made. And here Jesus claims that promise for himself. And it's an extraordinary claim. Often you'll hear people say, oh, well, he's just talking metaphorically and he didn't really mean to claim to be God. Well, in case we're in any doubt that Jesus was claiming to be God, his listeners do the work for us, don't they? Verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, to kill him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We do not stone you for any good work, they replied but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. They knew exactly what Jesus was doing. And he doesn't then respond, oh, no, 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 I wasn't claiming to be God. No, he accepts the claim. You see, they get it. And although their response is very sad, at least they see the point. Um, 
many of us will know the famous uh, way that um, C.S. Lewis, a great uh, Christian philosopher and thinker, um, thought through the implications of this. As soon as someone claims to be God, it suddenly just changes the entire game. No one else who has led a world religion, as it were, um, has ever claimed to be God. If Muhammad were to claim to be God, um, uh, if, if that was an accusation made against him, you could get into a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble. Um, he was uh, a prophet only, but Jesus uh, claimed to be God. And so the guessing game is much simpler. We can work out whether he's one of three things, and, and C.S. Lewis says this. He says, um, uh, if, as soon as Jesus claims to be God, he's either mad, or he's bad, or he's God. He's either mad, or he's bad, or he's God. And we get actually all of those things in this passage. Those accusations come up in this passage. But no one says to him, because you claim to be God, you're just a good moral teacher, you're just one of many flavours of religion, take it or leave it. No one says religion's a private thing here. They say, as soon as you claim to be God, they recognise he's either mad, he's either, or, or he's bad, or he's God. So verse 19, they accuse him of being mad. Verse 19, they're on your sheets. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? I mean, it is a mad thing. It is a crazy thing. It's a stupid thing for a human being to claim to be God. And the first reaction that people should have, if you were to walk into your office or to go and meet with friends tonight and say, I'm God, their first reaction should be, you are raving mad. Well, probably you're joking. Hopefully they would have enough respect for you to assume that you were joking. But if you persisted in that, they would then start to think you were mad. They wouldn't immediately believe you. Or they might think you are more manipulative, more worse. Verse 33. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. This is a dreadful thing, to lead people away from the living God. It's a horrible thing, a dangerous thing, to t- create a following for yourself if you're just a human being. Maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Have a look at verse 14. I am the good shepherd... I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then skip on to verse 18. No one takes it from me, that's my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So he's claiming to have this intimate knowledge with God the Father, to share authority with his Father. And to be able to do the ultimate, extraordinary thing. Not just to lay down his life. Anyone can lay down their life. Lots of people have laid down their life. But you see, verse 18, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Again, an extraordinary claim. As soon as someone says, I'm God, you can say, well, prove it. Well, Jesus did extraordinary miracles, lived an extraordinary life was the most attractive man who ever lived in terms of the way that he treated people and loved people and cared for people and gave himself and served. He was not evil, he was not crazy. But then he makes it really so much harder for himself. He says, I'm going to lay down my life and then take it up again. And that's exactly what he did. He died on that cross, as we were thinking about earlier in the service. And then he rose again from the dead. And there is so much evidence that you can examine the evidence for yourself even today. You can go back through the ancient documents. You can work out, is this fiction or is this historical fact? And you can look at all the options as to whether Jesus 
rose from the dead or not. And there are people who've done whole PhD theses coming up with the alternative possibilities for the claims that Jesus rose to the dead. And the only plausible ones are that he actually rose. But I think that evidence isn't the be-all and end-all for most people. I don't think... It might be the first thing people bring up. If you say, Jesus is God, they might go, well, you know, there's no evidence for that. But they'll just say that. They won't have looked into it. They'll just say that. The real reason, I think, that people won't look into Jesus is because they fear that he will restrict them. That he will make life worse for them. He will make life boring and prudish and so on. He'll turn people into how Sim introduced me this afternoon. What was it? Seriously, geeky, boring people or something? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I just read myself into that description. (laughs) Um, But, as God, Jesus defines life as it was meant to be. And in this passage, Jesus defines life as it was meant to be, following him as life to the full. Have a look at verse 10 again at the top of the sheets. The thief, that is anyone who isn't really God, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they, my sheep, may have life and have it to the full. What Jesus is saying here is that if we follow him, not only will we discover that he is God himself, But by trusting in him, we have fullness of life. And suddenly that lifts our souls. That that gives us confidence, gives us an encouragement. And it makes perfect sense. If he's God, then he is the source of life. And therefore he knows what will be best for us, what will fulfil us most. What will make life most satisfying and meaningful. Verse 11 there on the sheets, I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. You see, Jesus is contrasting. If, if I wasn't really invested in you, life and soul, if I didn't come to give you fullness of life, if I was just a hired hand... Well then, when something that wasn't in my job description, as in dying for the sheep, came along as a possibility, I'd just run off. He says, no, I am the good shepherd, verse 14. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. What Jesus is talking about here is life to the full. is isn't stuff. He's not talking about more money, a more easy life, a collection of more goods of more popularity and so on. He's talking here about an eternal relationship with himself for all eternity that is meaningful and purposeful. It is life to the full. But I suppose what we might be thinking or friends that we talk to about this when we try and be shamelessly pursuing fullness of life in Christ and saying how Jesus brings life to the full, they'd be thinking, well, maybe this is some kind of trick. I don't really believe he can offer life to the full. It's a kind of election manifesto that we're just not going to vote for because it's just not possible to put this into practice. Or I've seen religious people and they're boring 
and they're killjoys, and they're, they sort of want to live a kind of monastic, weird, segregated life. I'm just not interested in that. I just don't believe you, Jesus, when you say you come to bring life to the full. What can we do? What, how can we show people that Jesus is serious when he says he comes to bring life to the full rather than just to restrict us to control us? What would convince you? Maybe it's verse 11 again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. How serious do you have to get before someone will be convinced that you love them and you have their best interests in heart? Jesus says he's willing to go to death. And that brings us on to our second simple point. Why do we shamelessly pursue fullness of life in Christ? Because of who he is and because of what he's done. And the simple point is here that Jesus is so serious about giving his followers life to the full that he chose death instead of life so that he can give me life instead of death. He chose death rather than life so that I might have life rather than death. We need to emphasise this, don't we? Because otherwise, him laying down his life for the sheep just sounds totally and utterly pointless. I mean, just imagine um, two lovers walking along a beautiful cliff with the sea out in front of them and the sun setting. They're on a romantic weekend together. And um, he says to her, I just want to show you how much I love you. Let me just show you how much I love you. And she stands there on the edge of the cliff looking down. And she's thinking, it's great that you love me, but that wasn't very useful. That wasn't the kind of relationship that I was looking for. Just pointless demonstration of love that achieves nothing. And there are people out there who will tell you that that's why Jesus died, that is a wonderful example of love. And we need to see just how tragically humorous that is. It's a joke, isn't it? The idea that he would die on the cross just as an example of love. No, he gave his life for us so that we might have life rather than death. Because he knew what we deserve for the way that we've treated God for our sin. What we're going to think about here is just a simple illustration of what is sin. What I've got here is um, just a a simple circle, and within the circle, the blue circle on the screen, uh, says God, the source of life and love. And what I'm trying to illustrate there in a sort of rather boring mathematical picture is that um, within the circle of a relationship with God, we have access to the source of life and love. And that's what we're made for. We're made for a relationship with God like um, a branch is made for a relationship with a tree. And so we need to know him, we need to be in relationship with him, we need to depend on him in order to benefit from life and love and to be able to live life to the full as it was designed to be. But when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about this kind of action. Do you see that little red arrow with sin in it? It's 
leaving, running away from a relationship with God. But if you run away from a relationship with God, then you run away from the source of life and love. And you see how tragic that is. Because you end up running into death and broken relationships. And that's where our world is heading, isn't it? And um, you can't quite see it uh, on the screen here, but you've got going from blue to grey, and that grey is supposed to be an illustration of, of life now, where we don't have a relationship with God, but we're not yet dead, and we're not yet completely devoid of love and relationships. Things are broken, we're confused, we wonder why the world is messed up as it is. But ultimately, if we continue with that arrow of running away from God, we will go into that sort of black area, an area of total and utter despair. An area which Jesus, with tears in his eyes, called hell. Because if we continue to run away from the source of life and love, all we will experience is death and broken relationships for all eternity. And so we're told that God is angry with that attitude of sin. And for God to be angry with that attitude of sin is not something that's in his anger's over here and his love's over here and he's got to find out a way to kind of bring those things together. For God to be angry with that attitude of sin is exactly the same as his love. Because for him to hate the thing that causes us to lose out on his love and life is for him to pursue us in love. So when he calls us out and says, don't go there, don't leave me, don't run away, don't be like stupid sheep and run away from the good shepherd, it's the kindest thing he could possibly do. And Jesus said he came as the good shepherd to go out after his sheep who were tempted to run away from him and to win them back. But in order to do that, Jesus himself had to face the anger of God against that attitude of sin. Jesus himself had to experience the Father's anger, as, as Holly was reading that amazing poem um, earlier today, about Jesus as he hung on the cross, facing the full force of God's anger against the way that we have treated God, and all the mess that that has caused. The extraordinary thing about this love is that it means that when, Jesus, when we put our trust in Jesus, we suddenly realise that we've got nothing to be proud about. We've got no reason to be like those religious people that people despise. Perhaps the very thing that causes us to feel ashamed, that causes our society to say religion is bad, religion is rubbish, because you're also uh, full of pride and arrogance, thinking that you've got the truth and you're better than us. See, if we understand that where we're heading is away from a relationship with God until God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, gave himself for us, then we realise that we have no room for pride. We have been rescued. We haven't been rewarded for anything. And many of you know will, will know one of my favourite quotes at the moment is that of Winston Churchill, who said of another politician, he's a humble man with much to be humble about. 
And Christians are to be like that. It's not supposed to be an insult of us. It's supposed to be the truth. We are a humble people with much to be humble about because the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us. But what we then discover is that not only did he lay down his life for us, but he laid down his life for us to give us life to the full. Let's have a look again at verse 27. It's there on your sheets. Verse 27 Verse 27 says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So Jesus lays down his life for those who will follow him. He gives himself to bring us back into relationship with himself. And then as he speaks, we listen to his voice. He knows us personally, and we follow him. We obey him. We do what he says. And that is the life that he describes in verse 10 at the top of your sheets as life to the full. Listening to his voice and following him. And do you see what this does to our idea that Jesus is a killjoy and that his commands are going to restrict us and so on? It just turns that on its head and it makes us see that actually every one of his commands, his voice to us, is life to the full. And so rather than having that mindset of, oh, well, I know Jesus says this, so I'm going to do it out of duty we can think, no, Jesus says this, so I do it out of joy. Because I know that's what life to the full is. I'm just a sheep. I I would just go my own way. I'd run away from him if it weren't for him. But I hear his voice now. And I can have life in all its fullness by obeying him. And so I don't obey him. I don't come to church and gather with his people and read his word and work out how he wants me to live and what he does and doesn't want me to do and what relationships he does and doesn't want me to pursue. I do that not out of duty, but out of joy, out of delight, because he gave himself for me, so that I might have life to the full. And do you know what it also suggests? It means that as we look at his commands in the Bible, that we need to be convinced that he commands what is best for us. So maybe there's something that you're struggling to to understand, you're thinking, oh, well, I know I ought to do this, but I'm I'm struggling to do it, but I'll just do it out of duty because then God will be happy. Actually, I don't think that's right. I think we should be unsatisfied with doing things out of duty. It may be, for a while, we say, okay, I'm finding this command hard to obey, but I believe the big picture of life in all its fullness, and so I'm going to obey. But... I think what Jesus is suggesting here is that we should, we should want more than that. We should want to think, why is it that he commands me to do this so that I can do it joyfully, so that I can pursue him shamelessly and joyfully and go after that eternal purpose and security that he's given me because of who he is and what he's done. You see, this life to the full that Jesus laid down his life to give us means that I can put my life in his hands. And actually, following Jesus is all or nothing. It's not just a private thing. It's not just something that we keep to ourselves as our own personal little relationship with God, but that we don't bring it into our relationship with other people. No, it's all or nothing. If I really understand what Jesus has done for me, and that life to the full is living for him, and rejoicing in him, and praising him, and depending on him for everything, then I depend on him entirely and I speak of him in every situation. I give my life to him and I follow him even if it costs me everything, even if it costs me what I consider to be my own freedom. 
even if it costs me my own choices, even if it costs me my own life. And as we know, there are some countries where just becoming a Christian is a death sentence, countries like Somalia and North Korea that we were praying about on Wednesday. Are we willing to put our life in his hands because he gives us life to the full in every area? Are we willing to see that actually his commands to us are like a love language? You ever heard that, um, that idea of love languages? There's a guy called Gary Fuller, is it? He wrote the five love languages. And um, what's that? Gary Chapman, that's it. And um, he talks about how we need to understand those in relationships, especially kind of marital relationships. Because um, for some people, their love language will be receiving gifts. Um, and for other people, it will be uh, quality time. And if for s- someone who thinks that the most loving thing they can do is give a gift to someone who thinks that quality time is the most important, what you could end up finding is that if you give your, your gift of you know, a really nice bracelet or something, and all they want is quality time, they won't feel loved. And it will feel like you're kind of speaking Chinese to one another because one of you is trying to love, but the other is not hearing love. And Jesus' commands to us are a bit like that. I think when we hear command, we think not love. We think that's, that's something I, I don't want to do, or that I have to do, that's about duty, that's about ticking boxes, that's about restricting my life. And Jesus is saying, no, when I speak and you listen, you experience my love. He talks about that more in John chapter 15, that actually his commands are the way, obeying his commands are the way to experience his love. And we should think like that in the way we live it. Well, in the, um, in the coming week, so I'm, uh, I'm off next week and then uh, uh, for the next two weeks, so we're on holiday um, next week and so I won't be preaching for the next two weeks, but then we get back, um, we're going to look at uh, the three subpoints to this being shameless in worship that idea that we can walk straight into God's presence like a, a child could walk into his parents bedroom the only child that could walk into the president of the United States bedroom in the middle of the night would be his own child and we can be shameless in worship in coming into God's presence like that we're going to think about being shameless in community the fact that with the family that Jesus has given us uh, we um, we know that in and of ourselves we're like straying sheep. And so we can work with each other's lives and, and be an intimate family and an interdependent body and speak the truth and love to each other to build each other up. And then we're going to think about being shameless in mission as those with this wonderful news to share. And so as we close, just have a look at verse 16. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. But we are those sheep because Jesus was talking about the sheepfold of Israel, and I think the majority of us are from Gentile backgrounds, if not all of us. And so praise God that He came out to seek those who are not of this sheepfold. But we're now in the sheepfold, and there are others out there who are not yet. And we need to be shameless in mission and going out to seek them out to share this amazing good news with them. Because either it is not true and we should reject it, or it is the best news in the world and the kindest, most loving thing we can do is speak shamelessly about Jesus because he brings us life to the full.
So the kindest, most loving thing you can do whenever you meet with someone who's not a Christian is to talk about Jesus. Even if they think that it's something you should keep to yourself. Then why don't we spend a little bit of time uh, praying and then I'm about to say my last Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to give us life and life to the full. And we pray that you might so work in our hearts by your spirit that we would shamelessly pursue that fullness of life in you. Not just with those who know you already, not just in our private lives, but in everything we do, speaking of you and the fact that you have given us meaning and purpose in even the mundane things of life. Because knowing you, having a relationship with you for all eternity is life in its fullness. In your name we praise you. Amen.